Hi guys, it's Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know that when you use the code BLUEGRASS on our website, samsonshaircare.com, BLUEGRASS will save you 10% and go to support this wonderful podcast, The Walls of Time, sharing the history and stories of bluegrass. Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. From the Ozark Hills to the Grand Ole Opry, C.J. Lewandowski and his band, the Poe Ramblin' Boys, are a bluegrass success story who have taken their traditional sound to new audiences. Daniel Mullen sits down with C.J. at the 2020 Society for the Preservation of Bluegrass Music in America Convention in Nashville to talk about C.J.'s introduction to music, his fascination with the mandolin, and first generation of bluegrass artists, and about his path to a successful career in the genre. Hear why bluegrass is more than just music to mandolin player and singer C.J. Lewandowski in this episode of Walls of Time. So C.J., where did your love of bluegrass music come from? Well, my, my family's not really bluegrass people, and uh, I come from Missouri, a little town called House Springs originally, and then we kind of moved out to a little town called Grubville, which is a real place. Grubville, like the worm. It's Grubville. Great. Yeah, Grubville. It's like historic. Did they a, get any, like, kickback from Grubhub? No. You know? I, well, you know, maybe. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tavern shut down after Grubhub, so. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a tavern, a church, and a post office. That's, a, that's it in Grubville. But anyhow, um, when I was growing up, my mom had a best friend, and uh, I'm an only child. She had a boy, too. He's an only child. And so we naturally were just best friends growing up. And his family, uh, his grandpa went to all the festivals around Missouri and stuff, and his uh, his grandpa's brother was a bass player, and he just knew everybody in the Missouri scene. And uh, one day, I had always been into music. My grandma sang in church and stuff, and um, I was – I don't know, I guess I was 13. Yeah, I hadn't been to high school yet. And so he had been, I was about to turn 14. He was 13. And he found a banjo underneath of his grandpa's bed, and he got it out and started tinkering with it. And you know how a banjo sounds when people don't know how to play it. <laughs> and his grandpa come in and said, now you're going to learn how to play that thing or you're going to put it up. Don't mess with it. And my buddy Steve, he got he got mad. And he decided he was going to learn something on it. So at that time, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to play something. Like I said, I'd sang since I was three or four. Uh, but I was trying to figure out something. And I was in Bob Wills' music at that time. I love Texas Swing. And I Me was too. I was infatuated with the fiddle. And so I was going to play the fiddle. Well, then, you know, I was going to sing. We, we, we started learning, took lessons from a lady uh, right down the road from Groveville there, Connie Layton. And um, both of us did, actually. She taught all the instruments. And um, I learned on started learning on the fiddle, and that happened about two or three months. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I love a fiddle, but I actually, uh, I told this story the other day, too. I was walking through. She had this little trailer that she would teach people in. had little separate rooms. And I walked by one of those rooms one day, and I seen a picture of Bill Monroe, which I knew who Bill Monroe was and Flatten Scruggs and everything at that by that time. But uh, I seen a picture of Bill Monroe holding that mandolin, and I was just like, I seen power. But I think I seen the power of the connection between the man and the mandolin, like their companionship and the power that he had. Uh, but I, at the time, I associated it with the mandolin, 
So it's like, I've got to play the mandolin. I want to play the mandolin. So we started going from there. And another thing, too, that really jump-started us, which is a lot of people can kind of, I guess, say this, and it, a lot of people probably get tired of hearing it, but Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was something that really, it came out. How old were you when that soundtrack oh, came out? Oh, man, I was I was 13. Yeah, I was 13 when that came out. So I remember... Me and Steve, we went to the movies one time. His mom had to go do something, and she dropped us off at the movie theater, and we just seen this movie. We didn't even know it had music in it. We just heard it was a 1930s jailbreak type thing, you know, and like, well, we'll go see that. Went and seen it, and the music on that just, it it filled us full of life. Like, we got it. We were excited, and and like I said, we had no idea that it had a soundtrack like that. And uh, from there, you know, his, his grandpa, Udell Stout, he supported us. Once he figured out that we had a fire for something, Udell took us everywhere. He brought us, we're here at Spigma, he brought us down here the first time. Um, and that, that was a pretty big trip for us when we were, you know, 14 and 15. Oh, because yeah. St. Louis. How far is it from there. Grubville to Nashville? Uh, <laughs> Grubville to Nashville, that's a new CD now. Now, there you go. Uh, it's roughly six hours. Okay. So, um but when you're 13, 14, that's a big deal. That's like man. going to the Coming moon. to Nashville, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, come just the just the word Nashville was pretty cool. But he would take us. Uh, we went to all the Down for the Mountain tours. So I got to meet Ralph right there at his table. I don't know. I guess I was fourteen at that time, and I had a <laughs> I had a cassette tape, uh, Ralph cassette tape, and he he signed it for me, and uh, he's super nice. But you know, back then, and I got to see john hartford which was a st louis guy and i got to see john hartford play at the fox theater in st louis you know which is a place that holds ballet recitals and orchestra stuff but you know john hartford and ralph stanley and allison krauss and ricky skaggs all those people so very early on we were exposed to a lot of heavy hitters well and that was such a good time for someone to be just getting into the music it's one of the most accessible times for our music ever was that that span a few years following oh brother because like you said you could see a show like that traveling around the country yeah all these big cities a huge tour man yeah i think there was 18 buses in that and it was just it was a production and you're talking about a box office hit you know out of the out of the movies but then there's this concert to follow it, and I remember, I remember worrying about trying to get tickets, and we got them. But every every show that I went to with that, we went to two. Uh, there was two different tours there. I forget the second one's name, but uh, one was at the Fox Theater, and the other one was at the big amphitheater out there in, in uh, Earth City, Missouri. And it was it was huge, man. And to see, literally. You know, I I had went to that amphitheater and seen Brooks and Dunn and stuff, and there's you could fit fifty thousand people in there, and that place was packed to see bluegrass stuff. And at the, back in the day, I wasn't thinking about like how many people were loving bluegrass because I just loved it and I wanted to be around it as much as I possibly could. I didn't ever think that I would be doing it for a living, but it was just I, we were so ate up with it, man. We we got bit hard by the bluegrass bug, and we we wanted to be everywhere. And I, as as we went along, Udell took us everywhere, and and we couldn't, I wouldn't be where I'm at today without Udell Stout because he supported everything we did, and uh, it was you know we didn't have a job, we were kids, 
very very young kids and he he took he took us everywhere we wanted to go and uh we learned a lot and he he was around all those missouri guys too to where we had easier access to them as young people there was a lot of younger people in in the missouri scene mostly family bands the ferris family uh the martin family there there's a never there's so many family bands come out of missouri so me and steve were kind of these odd odd guys out because we didn't have any brothers or sisters and we didn't have anybody you know our parents weren't part of the band or this kind of thing so it was just kind of so you maybe originally you seemed more like outsiders or observers more than people that had been steeped in it since birth yeah yeah it was we were a little bit of outsiders but we we never clicked with the people our age so much because those older guys from Missouri, they, we were lucky to where the first generation of bluegrass guys were still around in Missouri and, and in the scene is the, the major scene. So we got to see quite a bit of those, but we also were hanging around St. Louis area where so many of like, there used to be a country row in St. Louis and that's where Hartford started, and that's where Don Brown and the Ozark Mountain Trio and Dub Crouch and Norman Ford and the Bluegrass Rounders, all these bands came from – they would play these clubs like Cincinnati or wherever else, Baltimore. And we had that for a while in St. Louis, and these guys were the guys that did that. And here they are 50 years older than us, but somehow they took a liking to us. So we were always hanging out with the older crowd – and we didn't feel like we fit into the to the younger scene as much, even musically too, because we were playing all that traditional stuff, and they were doing a little bit different things. Which is, you know, you play the music you love. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But I actually had a conversation with Rick Ferris, and uh, we were Rick and I had never talked ever uh, until we were in Switzerland. We played a show in Switzerland together with Special C. And it was actually one of our friends' birthday parties over there. And finally, I come. I said, "I've got, I've got to talk to Rick about this." So I went up to him and I said, "Man, I said I don't know what was going on, but I said we're, you know, we're here in Switzerland together. Who would have thought?" But I, I just want to say that I, you know, I kind of felt uncomfortable being around that Missouri scene a little bit. And we never could connect. And I said, I just want to apologize. I don't know if I did anything or what, but I said I felt like the music and all that stuff. And he's, I said, I was intimidated by you guys. And, you know, I think we just need to get over that now. And he said, he said, well, he said, I got something to tell you. I was intimidated by you guys because you didn't have your family supporting you or as far as, like, being a part of the band. And he said, you were running a band, which I was. Uh, you were running a band when you were 17 years old, and you didn't have, you know, you didn't have your parents driving you around, and you were doing all this stuff by yourself. He said, you you guys scared us. I was like, really? So we're all just like, huh, we were scaring each other. So, <laughs> so it was it was a cool conversation, and, and you know, we've always been friends, but it, we've become really close. And he said, man, you guys, you guys lived the dream. Because you were hanging out with the guys that we wanted to hang out with, the guys that were the originators of our Missouri stuff. So it was it was humbling. Like I kind of looked back at it and I was like, man, we didn't, you know, we didn't live the way that they did. And but perspective they, means a lot. Like, yeah, you got, you know. yeah. And I, when I got his perspective, I was like, holy cow, I'm I'm very lucky, and I didn't know it. You know, I wasn't looking at that in that perspective until he told me about it. So 
It was a good conversation. Uh, for folks that aren't as familiar with the Missouri bluegrass scene, because yeah. it is very unique, and just like how Definitely. you mentioned, you know, Cincinnati Dayton sound is a little different, the Baltimore sound, mm-hmm. the D.C. area sound. Yeah. What is unique about the Ozark Missouri bluegrass sound? Well, a bunch of them people come from the Ozarks, they, and some come from Arkansas as well. So I just call it Missouri bluegrass because the, they all migrated up to St. Louis for work, uh, GM and all that stuff, but – there was, I think there was a little bit of raw edge to it, and uh, I've kind of studied it enough to where they all loved raise heads. You know, Doug Dillard come out of the Ozark, well, the Dillards, of course, but Doug Dillard, the first, like, master tone banjo that ever hit the Ozarks, I've heard this from many guys, was Doug Dillard's RB250, and it was a raised head banjo, and they didn't know what a raised head was versus a flathead, that, you know, so... A lot of that Missouri stuff has a raised head a banjo in it, so there's a little bit of different sound there uh, that you get, and there's there's a lot of drive there uh, behind the Missouri music. And you know, the mandolin has a lot to do with it. The fiddle, the fiddle was more of a old time style, kind of a front porch fiddle style, and it adapted over the times. And you can hear that in a lot of Hartford stuff. He would go back home to St. Louis and capture. Gene Goforth and and uh, all the Wagner family and stuff, Stan Wagner and Bob Wagner, but the, the, it was very heavily fiddle based. But there was there was it was driving banjo, heavy fiddle, really hard mandolin chop. You know, you've got good representatives in, in Dean Webb and uh, Don Brown in, in that perspective. So it was it was traditional all the way. Like there was there was no straying. Everybody wanted to to play like Bill Monroe and sing like Jimmy Martin. You know, and but also it had that raised head sound to where you've got a little bit of Stanley flavor too. So it was it was a really cool mix of everybody that was popular during the time. And then after they eventually learned all that kind of stuff, they sprouted out and started doing their own things. One of the one of the biggest things that I hear is the harmony structures and that stuff. Back, you know, the Osborne brothers started that high high harmony singing and stuff. But one, it's kind of. It's kind of awkward, but it's cool. <laughs> Don Brown and the Ozark Mountain Trio would do, they would do a four-part harmony, and but it would be a low baritone lead, tenor, and then a high baritone. So they were actually doubling up on parts. The high baritone and the low baritone were singing the same part, but it was just an octave different, and it it made this huge full sound. Yeah. And, it, and it was kind of adapted after Jimmy Martin's Sunny Mountain Boy stuff with with Gloria Bell and things like that, but it was slightly different because there was two baritone lines singing the same part, which people were like, well, that's not right, but it filled in a lot. So a little bit different harmony structures, a lot of, a lot of pushing, a lot of, you know, kind of the, it's got raw edge to it. And that's what I always liked too. Like it's, it had heart and soul to it. So who were some of the folks in that, uh, that were, you know, big in that regional Missouri scene that you, looked up to the most and have mm-hmm. adapted a during, lot to your own personal sound during my time or, yeah okay or, or just in general in general yeah. okay well let's see a lot of the guys that live close to me ray gore he sang uh he sang tenor to don brown don brown is known as the father of missouri bluegrass that's what they call him he was a mandolin player and and don don died the year before i found bluegrass he died in 2002 well no that wouldn't he, it, before I found his music, I guess you should say. So he died in 2002, and um, 
once I found his records and then I found out that Ray Gore was singing on them, which Ray's 80, he's 84 now. And, um, his tenor singing has always been great. But once I found out that he was on all those recordings, I wanted to start doing Don Brown music. So I kind of got infatuated with that. And me and me and Ray would sing Don Brown stuff. And we still do every time I go home and he shows up. So Ray Gore, uh, Don Brown and the Ozark Mountain Trio. Then you had uh, Rich Orchard, Frank Ray, and the Ramblin' Bluegrass Boys, which later changed to uh, Rich Orchard, Frank Ray, and Cedar Hill Grass, which now is Cedar Hill. Uh, so Frank is still doing a lot. Uh, Rich is uh, he hasn't he hasn't played uh, shows in quite a while. But another guy uh, that kind of took us under took me under his wing was Jim Orchard, uh, um, and he started the Ozark Bluegrass Boys in 1969. And so I would go down to Eminence, Missouri, and and learn stuff, uh, learn Madeline stuff through him. And so he was the guy that kind of said you're not going to take a Madeline break until you can chop the <laughs> the right way. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. A lot of fun. There was a lot of folks. Uh, the Dillards were pretty heavily influenced though. They weren't around. Uh, they were already gone. But of course, you know, me growing up, Jimmy Martin was probably my first love. Really? Yeah. And then what about Jimmy, uh, appealed to you, man, his, his, his love like you could hear his passion and he was he was singing what he felt like there was no barrier between you and him it wasn't a marketing thing it was a it was a him loving what he did in the you know the paul williams era and jd that stuff you can't beat it and then um i fell for stanley brothers hard right after that you bill was say. yeah <laughs> bill was always bill was always in the picture too and I, I was always in had a love for for Bill because of the mandolin, you know. So there was that. But uh, later on, I would start getting into some different folks that I like people that don't get recognized as much as they should. And um, that goes into Charlie Moore and Bill Napier, of course, and Earl Taylor. Oh man. Let's see, Cliff Waldron, man. Cliff Waldron's great. And then, like, the the guys at home, too, they didn't get the recognition they deserved. And then, you know, Red Allen. I love Red Allen stuff. So I started, like, sinking hard for all these all these guys that were almost a part of those scenes that, like, we were just talking about, Cincinnati, Baltimore, D.C., and then the St. Louis guys as well. Because all that regional stuff is important. Yeah. And – I felt like we could benefit from it because most people were overlooking that, yeah. um, especially some people from my age bracket. They were going for the newer stuff, which I grew up. Man, when I, I was listening to Stanley Brothers CD, and then I'd grab Lonesome River Band, you know, Windows of Time or whatever it's called, and I, that was that stuff was just as important to me. Bluegrass Album Band changed my life, you know, but it was. I would always gravitate towards those old guys. And I think it was just because they were hungry and they wanted to prove a point. And the best thing about all those guys is they fall under this bracket of bluegrass music. But when they kick off a song on the radio, you know exactly who it is. But, you know, three measures in, 
you know exactly who it is. And so the uniqueness and the personality of everyone. Just like in country music back in the day, you could tell a Merle Haggard song before he sang his first note. Yeah. You could tell a Johnny yeah. Cash song or a Waylon Jennings exactly. song or a Willie Nelson song yeah. or a Loretta Lynn song. But it was all country music. But it was all yeah. from the same and tree. Yeah. yeah, the uniqueness was there. And I, I gravitated toward that because I've always been different, you know, compared to especially people that I went to high school with and, or school with in general. I was always the bluegrass kid, you know, and I was made fun of because I've had a little bit of different accent than everyone around home, and I played bluegrass and banjo. Played that tiny ha-ha. guitar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get that a lot. But it was, I just, you know, I, I, I embraced what they were doing, so I wanted to try and do that as well. So it took a long time to get there, but it's just the reality of what they do. It's real music. And I like real stuff, so I think that's what draw me to bluegrass in general. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. You said that uh, you grew up seeing your grandma sing in church. Yeah. You know, what what in bluegrass, what what sort of musical impact or influence did your grandma have on your life? She had a lot bigger influence than probably what I could explain. It's it's insane because she she passed away at a very young age. She was 50 years old. Wow. And at that time, let's see, that would have been, I was about to turn six. So she was only around for a short time of my life but she was this huge incredible force and everyone that knew her would say that too she was a she was a prayer warrior and she was filled with love and light and she was an encourager and you know she would walk into a room and just the whole place the whole attitude of this place would change and um she always encouraged me and I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of memories because I was so young, but the ones I do have are super strong. And, uh, I remember the first time I ever got up on what you might call a stage was at church. And the biggest thing back then, you know, here I am four years old was they had those, uh, colored foam, different oh, colored yeah, the foam little, covers on yeah, the red and the blue <laughs> yeah, and the yellow. Yeah, the That was the biggest little, thing. I, was, uh, I wanted the orange one. Things, yeah. The windscreens. Yeah. I wanted an orange one. <laughs> and I don't know why, mic. like that was the biggest deal. <laughs> and I sang Jacob's ladder and I'll never forget that. And the next time that I see my grandma, she had me like this little kitty microphone and amp thing. And it worked. It was, it was real, but it was in bright colors and everything. Yeah. Fisher price. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. And she, I remember, uh, 
my grandpa talking about it and i remember my mom and aunt talking about it she was actually invited to be a backup singer on the opry and then they were going to bring her they were going to try and introduce her to like more of a a gospel country scene early 90s you know time period and um she didn't want to go to nashville she wanted to do that she loved the grand Ole opry she loved music just she was overflowing with music all the time and uh, she was invited to do that but she said no because of the grandkids she didn't want to leave the grandkids and then all of a sudden all of a sudden if something happened as far as a career she didn't want to leave the grandkids and I was one of those three you know so that really stuck to me and so I kind of feel like I owe my grandma something because she gave up what she wanted to do for us and then all she's not here anymore uh so i feel like i should carry on her legacy a little bit so she was she was a incredible person i'm i can't even explain it enough <laughs> you talked about the realness of bluegrass and how it speaks to you mm-hmm. um how does the the communal and the community aspect of bluegrass appeal to you well because it sounds like, you know, especially as a young kid, you know, you got drawn into the community of bluegrass as much as you did I the did. music. You know, I did. Wh- wh- why was that a big deal to you? Uh, I, let's see. I've got uh, my family. I have a very, I have a large family. My dad is one of eight kids, and, uh, but I'm the only child and on, on with dad. And then there's several cousins and things like that. But, we're uh the family is a hard working construction company and they're you know they get they're on schedules and and they're nine to fivers and work hard for retirement kind of regimented for, yeah, yeah it's very regimented and there was <clears throat> there was expectations for me that i probably didn't <laughs> conquer for a while and uh so uh i was a my mom passed away when i was 10 and i was a mama's boy still am a mama's boy but when my mom passed away, I kind of blocked out a lot of things as far as uh, family stuff. And I wanted, I felt like, you know, with my grandma dying and then mom dying, I felt like everyone I got close to, I was going to lose them. You know, I was having, I was struggling pretty bad with that. And when I found bluegrass, I, I found something that I could never lose. You know what I mean? And it would never leave me no matter, no matter what I did, no matter if I screwed up or messed up or anything, any, it could be anything, get in a car wreck or I get locked up or drink too much or something, you know, any, anything like that. I always had it. it. I could always carry it with me too. It, no matter where I was, I had it. So it was more like bluegrass was a best friend, you know, that I never had. And it still is to this day. Like it's, it has saved me from a lot of trouble and a lot of heartache because I've, I've done some stupid things, <laughs> very stupid things in my time, and uh, it's the community aspect of it. I gained people, people that I would have never met in my lifetime if I, if it wasn't for bluegrass music, I would have never met them, and they have become some of the most influential people in my life. So when I guess I have a, a, a problem with people dying, you know, and my grandpa, I, after everyone, uh, my grandpa, on my dad's side, he was, he was a pretty big influence after my parents divorced. 
and uh he would he always took care of me i was kind of his favorite i guess and uh when he passed away when i was in high school that is when bluegrass was really pulling in and then i had all these older guys that were around his age you know so when i lost my grandpa i gained about five more so it's it's kind of hard to say but it's it's real um I'm closer to my bluegrass family than I am my actual family. And my actual family sacrificed a lot because I, there was a lot of years that I wasn't home for Christmas and Thanksgiving and this, that, and the other. And I moved away when I was 18. Uh, I just I felt like I had to get out of there because I was being not on purpose. People were worried about me and were caring for me, and they wanted to see me succeed, and they didn't think that there was any – you know, success in my dream of trying to play bluegrass for a living. They just thought it might've been a phase for me or a fad. Cause as I was a kid, I went through a lot of little phases and fads and Taekwondo and blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. But bluegrass stuck, man. It, you can't shake it out of me because it's, it's my best friend. And so I get, like I said, my family, my bluegrass family is bigger and I hold them dearer to me than than my actual family sometimes. You know, I've got my important people in my my immediate family, but you know, I I I love everybody that I've met and I've gained literally some of the best people in my life because of bluegrass music. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> wow. Um you said you moved uh moved out of the Ozark. How how close is Grubville to the the Ozark Mountains? It's in the foothills. It's not okay. really I kind of say the Ozarks because that's where I was going all the time to yeah. learn, and that's um, that that whole region is known as yeah. that. But I, did. yeah, down, you got you got the whole southern part of Missouri that's kind of known as the Ozark region. But it's it's Groveville is actually uh, in the county underneath St. Louis. Okay, so you're looking at three hours from where I would usually go to, like the Ozark National Scenic Riverways and stuff. But like I said, those guys taking me under their wing, and I, here I was, seventeen and eighteen, playing with the Ozark Bluegrass Boys, and they. They were mostly playing very regional, of course, and we would mostly all the time play down in the Ozarks. So every weekend, instead of what most kids do, which I don't even know what they did back then because I was always out playing music with these older guys, and if I wasn't playing music, I was out at the farm helping Dad string fence and you know take care of the cattle. So it was a different raising, but... uh I don't, I don't regret it by, by any means, but it's where I'm from. It's kind of like where you're from. There's rolling hills and, and it's, it's beautiful. There's plenty of woods and it's, it's the country. It's the countryside of St. Louis, I guess you could say. Yeah. So when you moved from Missouri, where'd you move to? I first moved to, uh, Kentucky. I moved to uh, Shepherdsville, Kentucky. And the, the reason the reason that I moved to Shepherdsville was because of, of Josh and Jeremy. Uh, Josh was in uh, – he lived in Shepherdsville. He's from Shepherdsville. was raised there. Josh, other, otherwise known Old as Jug. Jug. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first time I ever played out of the state of Missouri – well, like it, we'd go to Illinois sometimes, but the first time I ever made like this big road trip to play a show was to Shepherdsville, Kentucky at the Music Barn. And I had met – let's see, I had met Josh and Jeremy – brown up at uh jerusalem ridge in 2008 
I was playing. I had my own band called the Men of the Week, and I was actually playing guitar. In called that the band. what? The Men of the Week. Don't look them up. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were out there, and uh, Jug is just like he's everybody's friend, you know. So I he come right up to me, and he was just his jolly old self and everything. And and he said, "Who are you?" And I told him, and he said, "You play?" I said, "Yeah, I got a band." He said, "What's the name of your band?" And I said, "The Men of the Week." And he said. Men of the week, you're my favorite band on MySpace. <laughs> so we become buddies r- right there. And uh, Jeremy, of course, and we jammed all weekend. And and uh, so eventually, I moved. I moved to Kentucky to kind of be closer to music. I felt like I needed to get out of there to be closer to music, and so I did. And um, it worked for a few years. I went to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, stayed down there for two years, and then um, I got a call from. Uh, a buddy that played fiddle and he said uh, the city of Gatlinburg is doing a summer concert series and they've done it for 20 years you know and they said uh, we I'd like you to help we're going to put a little band together to do this stuff to walk up and down the parkway of Gatlinburg and play music Smoky Mountain Tunes and Tales Tunes and Tales you know and uh, Santana knows too so we I we always used to go on vacation to the Smokies, and I I told my family like one day I'm gonna live here, you know, and they always oh you'll never leave home blah blah blah. But I did everything that they didn't think I would do, I guess. But <laughs> we come down there and we auditioned, we got it, and that was that's a summer program, three months. And uh, I was kind of I was staying at Eli Johnston's house when I'd come down, and me and Eli become really good buddies, and he's you know he's from kind of the same region that I was at, but then again that same thing that happened with the family bands i was never close to him because it was just yeah different you know so so he's from the missouri area as well he's from kansas originally oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah right. but yeah, he gradu- so same yeah he graduated same, yeah. out of branson and uh, was in springfield for a long time so he was part of the springfield missouri bluegrass scene so anyhow we kind of bonded over being from kind of the same places and we let's see I was looking for a house while I was down there. I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to try and move down here. And uh, the day that I signed the papers on the house that I have was the last day for Tunes and Tales. So that day I didn't have a job. <laughs> but I, I was I was playing with Carl Shiflett some still. Uh, I, well, I was still full-time with Carl. But yeah, how did you get the job with Carl after after you talk about the move? Well, I'd like to hear about that. Oh, well, I was with the Men of the Week, and I was playing guitar, and my buddy that I started that with was Dylan Scott. And Dylan had left Men of the Week because he got a job offer with Carl. And Carl is, is he's kind of like he's kind of like Doyle Lawson to where he sees potential in young people, and he brings them to the forefront. And a lot of the folks that, that Doyle has gotten have come from Carl, Jesse Baker and I guess Brandon Godman and several of them. So Carl is a is a he's a true supporter of young people in bluegrass. And uh, I you know, I'd I'd actually never heard really much of Carl Shifflett. And um Dylan got the job and then my buddy Steve that we I had learned with, he come in on the banjo with my band, uh, the Man of the Week, and we we were doing our thing, you know. And all of a sudden one day I'm sitting out on the porch and get a phone call from Dylan, and he said, "Hey, you gonna be at Bean Blossom?" He said, "I've never been." It was 2010, so I've never been. He said, "You need to come to Bean Blossom." I said, "Ah, you know that's a long ways 
well, I was in Shepherdsville, so it was only like two hours. But <laughs> I was trying to make excuses, and I said, "Nah, I'm good." He's like, "Well, Carl, Carl might need a mandolin player." He said, "Do you think you can do it?" And at that time, I hadn't played mandolin in two years. I hadn't touched one. I sold it. Never wanted to mess with it again. Why did you play with Men of the Week? I was playing guitar. Okay. Yeah, and I was just playing rhythm and and singing lead, you know. And I'd kind of got flustered with mandolin, so I set it down. And um, he said, well, we'll call you if we need you. I said, okay, well, we're going to plan on coming up there. We're going to stay the whole weekend, hang out, whatever. We'll have a good time. Never been to Bean Blossom. I'd like to go. So I show up, never heard anything from Carl at all. So all of a sudden, we show up under that pavilion up there on the top of the hill. <laughs> Carl walks up and says, I said, you ready to play? I said, what? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. And, you know, he dresses up in suits and everything. I said, I don't have a suit, and I don't have a mandolin. He's like, well, do you think you can fit in one of Dylan's suits? I said, well, maybe. Yeah, we're about the same size, I guess. <laughs> he said, well, I got a mandolin on the bus. I said, okay. <laughs> So the first time I played with Carl Shivlett was on the Bean Blossom stage. First time I ever went to Bean Blossom. And I played mandolin, and I hadn't played mandolin for two years, you know. So it was just like, what's going on? You know, it was – to play mandolin on Bill Monroe's Bean Blossom stage was huge for me. And it's still – looking back at it, it was it was an incredible experience. And that led to, you know, like I said earlier, it led to one of my lifelong friends, Carl. Carl was – Man, you can't beat if if I had if I was gonna work for someone again, it would be Carl. He takes care of his guys so much and he sacrifices when he has to, you know, to, to please and to make sure everyone is taken care of. And he he showed me a lot about entertainment. And I think that Carl is Carl is Carl Schiff on the big country show. Yes. And it's a show. It's the big country show. It yeah. It's a show. Uh -huh. seeing Carl. And he showcased everyone. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't yeah, the yeah. Carl Schifflet show. It was the Carl Schiff or the Carl Schifflet and Big Country show. So when you were in that band, you were in a band. You weren't under a leader. You were in a band and everyone was treated equally and Carl of course was more or less the manager of the band and he was the front man. And the entertaining aspect. So we all learned everybody that I was with in that and those different culminations of the Big Country Show during those times. We all learned from Carl, and he didn't. It wasn't like sit down and have a little, like, like a little class. It was just you learn from the experiences, and I learned so much entertainment and how to communicate with people, or better, how to communicate with people better, I should say, and his. I don't know. He could he could control a show so good. He would have people in the palm of his hand, and uh, I just remember that. And to work that single mic and recreate stuff that, you know, everybody was bringing out all their in-ear monitors and line mics and this, that, and the other. And all we did was set up an old RCA mic, crank it up, and hit it, you know. And that was cool, which I'm not knocking the ear monitors because we use all that stuff yeah. now. But, man, I, I've i always – those guys in Missouri, they you know, if you can't do a single mic, then you shouldn't do it, you know. And you can't – if you can't create the music that you want with a five-piece, then you, you know, you're doing something wrong, you know. They, they were pretty hardcore about that stuff. And Carl was was a fan of that old stuff, still is, of course, but – he was a fan of all that old stuff, but he was a little bit more lenient and he let people express themselves on stage um, 
better than the other folks that I had grown up with. So I, I got a kind of a hardcore raisin, and then it was good to flow into Carl. And uh, I was with Carl till my first festival was June 2010 at Bean Blossom, and my last festival was September 14 at Bean Blossom with him. Well, and uh, Carl's music is is very different than oh, yeah. a lot of the folks that you listed as as early influences on yeah. you. So, so how did uh, how did your musical taste grow uh, being with Carl? At that time, like when I first started, uh, it was still pretty uh, centered around the Rebel days, his Rebel recordings, and uh, you can get a good listen to all that stuff. And, and we were still doing "Smoke Goes Up" and "Money Goes Down." And, makes no difference now you know all that stuff and um so my original finding of what i liked was that bob will stuff you know and that kind of turned me on so it i guess i gravitated toward it more because i had got to explore the bob will stuff again during a different time yeah. where i and, had, and his music has kind of a swing element oh yeah he's well, from texas and yeah. and he grew up around that stuff he loved jimmy rogers and ernest tubb and and uh he's also my my love for Flatt and Scruggs really expanded too, and he was he was one of those guys kind of like I was with Earl Taylor and Charlie Moore and Cliff Waldron. He was digging up those really those songs that got completely overlooked with uh, with Flatt and Scruggs. So we were pulling out some really cool stuff at that time. So my my catalog expanded huge you know it was a vast catalog when i was with carl especially and then when um so when it started we were we were doing all that rebel era stuff and flatten scruggs things and flatten scruggs influenced things as well because monroe fields was writing a lot of songs for us then well let's see uh dylan was playing banjo he left uh chris hill came in and like i said one of my best buddies in the world chris hill will make you a better singer if if he sings tenor to you he will make you a better singer just want to say that. And uh, after, let's see, Billy Hurt came in uh, on the fiddle after Charlie Lawson left. Billy Hurt, one of the coolest guys, one of the funniest people on earth. And uh, and one of the most overlooked fiddle players. Yeah, too. oh man. Yeah. He's got the Clark Kessinger down. If you don't know Clark Kessinger music, either listen to Billy or listen to those old Clark Kessinger records. And the odd thing is, is Clark Kessinger and Billy share the same birthday today as really awkward that's kind of that's and, and, and clark kessinger was one of billy's um dad's best friends so uh he clark kessinger always said that billy was born under a good sign <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow um let's see chris left and we were still doing all that kind of rebelly era stuff uh, but when brandon ernst came in uh billy kind of stepped out a little bit more uh, into his comfort zone as far as uh what he liked as far as Django stuff and they we started hitting blues and jazz things and and swingy more swingy stuff man you know here I am kind of a Monroe-esque I call I always call it Monroe flavored uh Madeline style so I was trying to adapt and I'm I'm not uh I'm not as quick to learn as Brennan. You know, Brennan can hear any, he's a musical genius. Uh, he could hear anything and be able to play it on the piano, the banjo. He's he's actually a piano player uh originally and then he transposed a lot of stuff over to banjo, which was really cool. So 
the big country show changed when when Brennan came in, and it was a lot of fun uh, for quite a long time. Let's see, that would have been probably two and a half years, I guess. And um, by the time of that two and a half year run, we had got the opportunity to work at Old Smokey and do You're all that about kind of you, stuff. You and Josh and, uh, and Jeremy, uh, you, you and Jeremy and Jug. Yeah, uh, and Jasper. That, that you guys had done tunes and tails with. Yeah, yeah. I done. Well, I done tunes and tails with somebody separate. Oh, okay, then, I'm sorry. And then I came in. Uh, I filled in. Uh, Eli actually said, "Hey, man, can you come and come down to the Old Smokey and play with us?" And I said, "Okay." I wasn't getting paid or anything. I was just hanging out, and. Uh, the matt flake the entertainment director who's also a musician he said uh he's like well would you want to be kind of like a swing shift guy a fill-in guy and i said i could probably do that i play guitar i just play rhythm on guitar but and i can sing he's like well you know a bunch of songs so this was there was a there was a time where i was living in tennessee playing old Smokey and still working with carl yeah. it went on for about a year uh 2013 was this time period and uh, so I was doing, I was a fill-in guy. And then me and Bo Isaacs, um, which is an incredible singer as well, on Fridays and Saturdays at Old Smokey, you would, <laughs> you would, they had music tw just the whole day. So the main band would play 40 minutes, and then we we were called the in-betweeners. But then eventually, we that was where the Port Ramon Boys name came from, was me and Bo Isaacs. We would get up and play the 20 minutes in between to fill the gap. And then when all the boys went to dinner, we would play an hour. So from like 4 o'clock all the way to 11 o'clock, we were doing 20-minute brother duet type stuff, mandolin guitar. And we did that for quite a while. Bo left, went to uh, another theater in town, and then I became kind of like a fill-in guy after that. So August of 2014, I was getting quite a bit of work at Old Smoky myself, and then they opened up another. They were going to open up another location in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and they said, "Well, we need another band." So Matt called me up to the office. And he said, "What do you think about starting a band down here? Just a, a house band? That's all it was." And I said, "Well, you know, I've got an idea of what I could do." And before I left Kentucky, I was working some with Josh had a sign company, Jug. And uh, I was working with him doing installation stuff. And then Jeremy was working at a mobility place. And when I was in Kentucky, man, we, we hung out every Monday. There was a jam session at Vine Grove, Kentucky. And uh, every Thursday, we'd go to Otter Creek Tavern and and drink beer and sing George Jones songs and karaoke. You know, so we were, <laughs> we were always together all the time. And yeah. if Tommy Brown was playing, I might go out with them just to hang out. Because because Tommy Brown, that's Jeremy's dad, yeah, and Jeremy and Jug were both playing. We're with both Tommy playing with Tommy time. Brown in the County Line Grass, and I was still playing with Shiflet. And actually, Jasper, we had known Jasper for quite a while. Uh, met him at several different places, JD Crowfest, and this uh, Kentucky School of Bluegrass Music down there, where Bobby Osborne teaches. He was he was a part of that with his sister. So we had seen Jasper quite a bit, but he had moved into town for the same reasons he'd been coming down for tunes and tales several times with his uh sister and seth Mulder and ben jenkins they had a little band that they would do that stuff well him and his wife uh, jasper and sophia they decided to move because they seen an opportunity as well just like i had seen and they they actually moved down the same time period that i did but i i i knew of them but i didn't know them so Jasper was actually working in the in the bar of Old Smoky pouring shots and stuff. So he was there. But when uh, when Flake asked us to do that, 
I said, well, I've got an idea of some people. But I said, we got to do some talking because we're both still playing in a band. And we were all really caring about the other bands. At that time, I was kind of, I wanted to get back. Like, everything I've ever done has been traditionally based. And not that there was no negativity or anything, but I just wanted to get back to playing bluegrass again. And we were doing a lot of that jazz stuff and things like that. I just wanted to play some some bluegrass stuff again. I, I kind of had a hankering for it. So I called Josh and I said, "What do you what do you think about this? We could be a we could be a house band." And he said, "Well, he said I'll come down and we'll try it." I said, "Well, come down one weekend and we'll try it." And uh he did it and he said, "I'd like to do this." So he come down uh and he was actually starting to play banjo some. Well, he was playing banjo with with Tommy previously, but he had switched the guitar, but I needed a banjo player at that time. So he came down and played banjo for about two weeks, and then we called Jeremy and said, well, what what can you do? And he couldn't get off as, as easily as from the mobility place as, as Josh could. So he carved a few days out, came down, and uh, at the end of that first weekend there, I said, well, what do you think? And, they, you know, we discussed the numbers and number of shifts and everything and said, yeah. Let's do it. He put in his two weeks. Josh uh, sold his sign company, and the last piece of the puzzle was Jasper. And uh, he he had been watching us. You know, we we'd had a kid that was playing, and then this was like a very short time, like two weeks. It was Bo Isaac's uh, cousin. He was playing bass, and uh, he was seventeen, and he had to go back to high school. You know, <laughs> so this is the end of August. We're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and this, like I said, we had only been Josh, uh, Jeremy, and myself. We had only been doing two or three weeks like that. Well, we knew he was going back to high school, so I said, "Well, I don't know Jasper, but let's see what we can do." And, and that, he's already working. Yeah, he's already right there. He yeah, lives there, you know. So right through the door. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, uh, "I said, well, let's try him out." And we had a Sunday shift, and we had to play 10 hours that day. I said, well, we're going to know if he can do it, you know, by this Trial 10 hours. Yeah. yeah. And, man, he got up there, and he hit it, and we we were doing all them funny songs and stuff to entertain the tourists, and he'd sling that bass down, and people would start clapping and cheering. I was like, here's that entertainment value stuff that I see, you know, learn from Carl. And uh, he's a great bass player, too, so it just it worked out. And so from then on – uh he kept, Matt Flake come down one day and he said what are we going to put they put a chalkboard up that says the schedule of everybody every week he said what are we supposed to put for this name band name I was like man I don't I don't know and uh, he said well you and Bo were going by the Paul Ramble boys right and I said yeah we were he said well, why don't we just do that I said, yep it's fine with me and we were a house band that was all it ever was supposed to be and uh, evidently it wasn't what it was supposed to be but that's the only idea we had. It it was really, really intriguing to us to have a steady paycheck, to still do what we love to do for a living, entertain and play music. And we were all, you know, such good friends to do that. And we get to go and sleep in our own beds every night. Whoa. You know, like that's crazy. No overhead. We go home every night there's no buses there's no no buses no yeah. you ain't got a full with setting up exactly you, you just, just show, show up. up yeah, yeah. you show up and you do it man that was so good and uh that's yeah that's how we started that and it's a, it, you said steady paycheck you ain't got to worry about oh 
we got to get so many butts in the seat so we mm-hmm. can get twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And if you know, all you had to do is push moonshine and sell CDs, and you'd make money. You know, uh, I always tell people down there. I said, the more you drink, the better we sound. So <laughs> <laughs> it would always, it would always, and it, the best thing about that old Smoky is it made us tight quick yeah. that we got cause we were doing it all the time there was that first summer uh through the fall there we worked 28 days in a row that was probably the longest we did 28 days in a row of five or ten hour shifts on, on during that time too we were doing sundays and mondays 10 hours and then we were doing tuesdays and wednesdays five and then if they needed us thursday friday saturday we would do that too but 28 days in a row and we got and we were playing like we weren't playing anything that we had written or anything like that. It was just we were playing what people wanted to hear. Uh, Rocky Top was, you know, every set. And we were doing the tourist thing, and that's okay because it was paying the bills, and we were all comfortable, and we were having fun. We still do have fun. We still play down there at Old Smokey. So it's a – I, you know, we talk about the 79 Club and, oh, the was it the Brass Door and – all these places all around the country that had bluegrass in it. I really think like old Smokey is going to be in bluegrass history books as a place where people expected to see good bluegrass music. And a lot of bands are coming through there. You know, that's a part of their story. So I really think, you know, that old Smokey is, is like the, the Cincinnati clubs and the Baltimore clubs of, of our generation right now. It's pretty neat to be a part of it. Well, and because, I mean, not only are they carrying on that uh, type of approach, mm-hmm. but they're about the only ones doing it these days. I, I yeah. can't think of any other, I mean, not just in Gatlinburg, but any other, there's not that many places, other no. places in the country period, other than maybe like, you know, the Station Inn or Station something like Inn. that that has live mm-hmm. bluegrass every yeah, night every night it's in, a, not in many. a major destination there's not many and there's not many that have people a house band on a payroll and old smoky has i believe right now when i started they had four uh that was 2000 into 13 there now i believe they have seven on the payroll and some are kind of like part-timers they come in when maybe poor ramblin boys are gone or seth molder's gone or you know whatever but they actually have we get a paycheck from them that's a big deal man that's it's huge and it makes us appreciate our talents and and what talent we do have and it like i said it it honed us in to make us a good band and we really didn't know it we just did what we did you know and it was fun and we never expected it to go anywhere else from there so it's been it's it's really cool to like not well i'm gonna try and say this the nicest way possible there's we've all of us growing up and playing we've all kind of struggled as far as like pushing what we wanted to do you know um, you, it's been met with resistance yeah. yeah there's always resistance and you know having to call the promoters and almost beg for a job sometimes and to get the dates you know you're always hoping that you'd have a big year and and get 40 50 60 dates you know and that was a big deal and we were always all the bands that we were all playing and we were always pushing 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 for that nothing nothing has been pushed with us we just 
we've rode the roller coaster and you know like i said we started at old smoky and that's all we ever expected to be we were perfectly content with that but opportunities arose you know and we just kind of rolled with it so it's nice to not have to work so hard and and get good results the amount of hours you put in with old smoky it definitely prepared you for when those other opportunities came Mm -hmm. to play in a place like colorado or ohio our first festival was uh was uh nanton alberta canada (laughs) a buddy of mine there's a facebook page called uh, monroe madeline appreciation society and he was on there his name's pat parsons and he was on the committee up there and he said would you guys want to play and it's like well we've never really Mm, we'd have to ask if we can get off for one old smoky but uh, and then all of a sudden a buddy of mine that we had went to uh well the same guy that uh rick and i were talking at his birthday party he's over in switzerland and he said well he wanted to bring carl back i'd just been over to europe with carl and he said well he's a six-piece band flights are kind of high right now to get over here i've seen videos of what you guys are doing at old smoky would you want to come? He was a Madeline player, so we were pretty good buddies. And he said, "Would, would four you? piece band? That's one. Yeah, two less tickets, exactly. one less hotel room. Exactly." Yeah. He said, "Would you guys want to come over and do it?" I was like, "Well, it was two weeks, you know." So I said, "I need to talk to Old Smokey." So we went to Alberta, played three days up there, came home, played Old Smokey five days, got on plane, went to Europe for two weeks, and that was that was the first thing. And as soon as we got back, we went right back to Old Smokey, never thinking that it was it. But that's that was our first ever date was two dates out of country. Like nobody even knew who we were in the States, you know, besides coming down to old Smokey, they knew who we were individually, but they didn't know who we were as, as the poor Rambo boys. So it was crazy that people outside of the country knew who we were and they wanted us at their venues. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. So it's nuts. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. It's been a wild ride, um, but you guys are really pushing a lot of boundaries, not only as a I guess you'd say, you know, younger bluegrass pickers that have a love for the older sound and the mm-hmm. traditional style, but you guys are also presenting it in a uh, a way that appeals to modern audiences. Uh, you don't s- expect to see guys up there with tattoo sleeves playing Stanley Brothers songs. Yeah. So what's, that, <laughs> what's that like when people see that juxtaposition of the old sounds with the new flair? Yeah, well, th- there was a time I'd started getting tattoos on my arms uh when I was with Carl and there was a, there was a long time there where I kept, I'd wear a vest with Carl and keep my sleeves down. And some of those promoters were a little, uh, uncomfortable <laughs> in a nice way of, 
of these tattoos and they thought I was I don't know people people judge by look and uh it's hey you can't judge a book by its cover but um I was getting a lot of slack for that but it's it's kind of funny to think of it now because that's the first thing when uh, our management company came and talked to us they're like you you guys are wearing jackets and everything like who's got tattoos I said I do and Jug does you guys uh let the other guys wear the suit the suit coats and then we're gonna put you guys in vest and you're gonna roll up your sleeves and I'm like what you want us to you're gonna roll up your sleeves <laughs> and uh so i said do what and he said yeah he said that's gonna appeal to people so i got to thinking about that i was like wow all these all these old kind of butt heads and bluegrass there <laughs> like wow this makes us a little bit of money now our tattoos wow that's cool yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they plastered them on your album yeah cover. yeah and they're on the yeah. album cover now so it was <laughs> it was funny but it it really has worked it's a and it wasn't that wasn't the intent of getting tattoos by any means it yeah. was just we just want to get For tattoos the record, we like getting tattoos as a marketing ploy might not be the best yeah decision. don't uh, <laughs> don't listen to me it was just this is an after thing yeah. so to you know we never like I said, we were never going to leave Old Smokey and and go outside of that. Well, we get all these teams behind us, and another well, piece of advice here is you're only as good as the team. You have to be able to present on stage, but you're only as good as your team. And I learned that from your dad. He he told me that at a uh, at a leadership bluegrass uh, conference. But um, and it, it's very true. And they you know they've guided us and they've put us in places where we never thought we would go and that was one of the goals when we we uh we were nominated for ibma momentum band of the year and then the following year we were let's see is that right yeah the yeah, following yeah. year we were a showcase band. we were a showcase band one, one time let's see i think you were it was showcase momentum. band the same year you were nominated for yeah momentum. it was momentum yeah. and showcase band that's right and then the next year we were entertainers of the or <laughs> maybe emerging artists emerging of the year. artists of the year yeah <laughs> And, uh, that was what 2018. 2018, yeah. and uh, that was a point where that was the management and the booking agency and everything was coming and looking at us. We just signed a rounder, blah blah blah. We when we got that emerging artist thing, we're like, okay, if anybody needs to go for whatever reason, now's the time to do it. But we're gonna we're gonna push. We're gonna now's the time to run with it, boys. And we did. And the one thing about that was. When we sat down and we all thought about what we wanted to do, we all had a you know a get together and said, "What do we want to do?" And one of the things that we really, really concentrated on, or wanted to focus on, and we felt like the people on our team could do was take us where bluegrass wasn't. That's a big deal, and yeah. I, I don't. People like to be within their comfort zone, and. We felt like we kind of had something to offer that could appeal, and we were encouraged by the management company to to think that way too. And sometimes it seems to me that a person's worst enemy is their selves because they can be slightly closed-minded, and you want to stay within your comfort zone. And we did too because your guys' comfort zone is not only playing, you know, Old Smokey, but playing every little. Small hole yeah. wall music barn yeah. in Kentucky, yeah. and Tennessee. That's what we were doing. Ohio and Clay City was a yeah. You know, we were at Clay City all the time, you know, and and going and playing 
Norman Adams festivals and stuff. Great stuff. Which is Bean all Blossom. awesome. Yeah, yeah. all the it's this, stuff you guys grew up doing. Yeah, these are sometimes, staples. Sometimes it's good to challenge yourself. Yeah, these are yeah. staples. We call that, as far as when we talk to the management company, we call that the traditional bluegrass marketplace. That's what we call it. Not as in traditional music, but the tradi- the stuff that's been there for a yeah. long time. The, the, the festivals the, the real, you know, the staples of, yeah. you know, your, your calendar. We played, you know, the first year that we did anything like that, we played Merle Fest. We played, oh, man, uh, Bourbon and Beyond. You know, John Fogarty and the Foo Fighters were on that. And, you know, you all, I'm not going to say that doing that is comfortable. Cause I, I say step out of your comfort zone. But, man, that can be intimidating. And you go to some of these places. We, we played a lot of just plain old music festivals or theaters that might not have ever had anything like what we present. And you walk in there, and you've—it's different, you know. And here we are walking in. We got rhinestone. We're set up to be, to be looked at, of course, because we've got rhinestone ties on and cowboy hats, and uh, you know, we we want to be string ties and George Jones tattoos. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Draw the eye. You're like, right? what are these guys? They're dressed <laughs> like the '50s, but they've got tattoos. What is going on? You know, and um, but hey, it worked. We we've, we've been we've been looked at and we we've caught attention and it wasn't necessarily on purpose but over time it's become a marketing thing because we've learned from it so uh we just i remember the first time that i grabbed one of those rhinestone ties was up in a festival in canada and this little place had vintage clothes and i seen that little rhinestone tie i was like man that's cool 30 bucks yeah i could take that so i i wore it that night on stage and at that time we were wearing ties just, just regular ties and all the guys were like, kind of giving me looks like, what are you doing? Oh, you think you're the star? You know, I was like, no, I just think it's cool. And, you know, oh, the next week, Josh has got one. The next week, <laughs> Jasper's got one. Huh. So it just kind of, yeah, it wasn't a plan. It just happened. And now it is a plan. But uh, that, that that first tie, I kind of thought it was important. And uh, I actually donated it to the uh, Bluegrass Museum the other day just to say, like, this was the first tie that the poor Rama was used you know so it's to be in those places is a little nerve-wracking sometimes and we're dealing with you know not on stage necessarily but there's a lot of things um that bluegrass is a little behind on and i'm not saying that in a negative way at all but we we're playing all these places and we're learning how to advance shows. What is advancing a show? You know, we kind of talked about that earlier before those podcasts. What <laughs> we got to advance some things now. And then we're actually helping to market these shows too. the, the ones that the one off the standalone dates that we're going and playing at these brewing companies and theaters and whatnot. Uh, we call them and we say, what can we do? to help market this so we get more people in the seats it's not like oh we're playing your venue it's up to you to tell everybody to tell everybody so Uh, russell moore said one time he said that you you can't sneak into town and expect to draw a crowd exactly that's true (laughs) so we're trying to figure out what we can do with our social media resources and our team that can do graphics and blah 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 we're trying to implement that so some of these places, Bourbon and Beyond, Merle Fest, things like that, the uh, they love that. They open they 
they come to that with open arms and say, yes, you know, you tell us what you need and we'll tell you what we need and it work together. And then some of these, the kind of the traditional bluegrass marketplace uh, that we've all been raised in, sometimes the people don't answer you back. And then you say something about, well, can we get this out to your mailing list? And they've got that thing locked up in a vault and it's, it's, they're, they're guarding that. And, st- and that's fine because they've worked a long time to get it. But it's also like this, we're trying to help you not, we're not stealing, we're sharing, you know? Yeah. And so. Or it's, uh, rising tide raises all the ships. That's you know? right. Like, yeah. Know, it's and all for one, one for all. In yeah. Bluegrass. That's it, what we want to do, man. It's, 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 it's huge to try and advance bluegrass music. And it's great example is. Oh, brother, and that down from the mountain tour. Yeah, it was Cause huge. Because I'm, uh, I'm sure there was a lot of folks back then. They're like, oh, well, they're they think they're going yeah. uptown, you know, mm-hmm. with the, with playing all these yeah. big fancy dates. And I've had a festival for 40 years, and yeah. we can't get 50,000 people. Exactly. However, here we are 20 years later, and you're one of countless bands and mm-hmm. musicians and future songwriters and future label producers or um, album producers or whatever yeah. that because of the exposure and the success mm-hmm. of that tour yeah. are here, you know, it helped the music. It helped the, in- yeah, yeah. it helped the industry. But uh, also, on the opposite end of that, those regional festivals and stuff are extremely important. Absolutely. We cannot take the – don't – Absolutely. You know, support your local organizations. I'm wearing a hoodie right now. That's This is the first festival I ever went to, mm-hmm. MABC, the Missouri Area Bluegrass Committee. It's the oldest bluegrass association still going in the country. And that's the first time I, I seen uh, – the first time I ever went to MABC festival. First festival I ever went to, Mike Snyder was there. I could see Charlie Cushman and, and Mike. And, and then I got to see all these local bands too, so – don't knock we we're not knocking no, by any no. means the the regional festivals and the traditional marketplace but we can all work together to make this bigger than what it is not to say that it's not big and it's never going to die so i completely disagree and i will argue it to the day that i die that people say that bluegrass is dying that is not happening it's not happening it never will happen it can't um, you guys are one of a whole and, and people say you know the traditional bluegrass sign you guys are one of a whole slew of great new yeah. traditional bands that all sound unique mm-hmm. that are really um, it's happening again yeah it's it's, it's a, happening there's again there's a traditional wave right now just like the great t- yeah new, young, young bands that all sound different they yeah. don't all sound the same Definitely. all have different influences different yep. styles different approaches completely agree there's I, a lot of stuff for folks right now uniqueness is coming back around there's it there was I could, I'll probably get a bunch of slack for this, but there was a bunch of homogenization. Of, is that the word? Yeah. <laughs> there was a bunch of that going on for a little bit of time. You know, there's there's certain things that everybody wanted to be able to get out of this band and go directly. Like, it's almost, I have a good friend, he calls it cookie cutter bands, which I'm not going to use that, <laughs> but that's that was his example of it was, this particular musician can go play for any band and it'll work. You know, it's really hard for us. If one of us was to leave, you know how hard it would be to find somebody to put, replace that. That's important to feel that you have, you're that needed. You're that wanted. You're that important. You're not just one guy. Well, he's going to go over here this week and then somebody else is going to come in and take his place and no one's ever going to know the difference. That the uniqueness aspect, I think was lost for a minute and it was a long minute and uh, 
It's coming back. I, I it's it, well, actually, it is back. I can't say it's coming back because it is back. Carolina Blue, Timmy Jones is a hoss, and them and him and Bobby writing songs together. Uh, we've got Cody Norris show is is just now starting to get some representation and the the recognition that he was needing for so long and and deserved for so long. Uh, we've got yeah, high fidelity. High Alex fidelity. Leach. Alex yeah. Leach is coming. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, man, we all grew up in the same circuit. Yeah. So it's like all these people that we have all grown up with, and we've all dedicated our lives to preserving our type of bluegrass music. And it was all unique. And we've all helped each other out at one time or another. We've all played with Alex. Uh, Alex has played with us. We've played with Cody. Cody has played with us. We've shared. And we all grew up together, and we all kind of come from the same – we don't come from the same areas, but we all came from the same blueprint as far as we were all at Jerusalem Ridge. We were all at Bing Blossom. We were all, you know, doing this kind of stuff. Um, some of my best buddies up in Illinois where you think bluegrass is kind of stale right now, um, Firebox, bluegrass band, they're doing their own thing. They're up recording today at Big Tone Records in, in Bristol, you know, recording on one mic. So that kind of stuff is cool again. So – there's a place for everything, and uh, but the biggest thing is the personality and the uniqueness and the character of people. We once again have characters of bluegrass music, you know. So you got to hold your your personality. Be true to yourself. Cody and Alex are characters. Yeah. <laughs> In the words of traditional grass, be true to yourself, little darling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. You got to be true to yourself, but you also have to look at this. This is a some some things that hurt people is it's a business, and you have to treat it as a business, you know. And like your dad said, you have to take care of your guys. Consistency is key, and uh, that's the one thing I think that we have had an advantage for so long is because it's been the same four of us for five years. That's and the band has been has existed for five years. This August will be uh, six, but. It consistency is key, but you like I said, you also have to treat it like a business to where you can't think of yourself all the time. You have to think think of the industry, think of what bluegrass means to you, think of it as a business, but also you have to think of the industry. You want to better the industry, you want to better yourself while you're doing that, but don't. Don't just think of yourself. Think of the whole industry. Could this be good for bluegrass music? Because if it's good for bluegrass music, it's going to be good for you, and it's going to be good for all your friends, and it's going to be good for everything, just everything in general. So I think a lot of people are kind of closed-minded, and they want to they want to succeed themselves, but they also – that's what we're trying to do with this marketing stuff too is like we want to help further education of behind-the-scene things in bluegrass music to where we can be playing we're playing the kennedy center this year like how many how many bluegrass bands have played the kennedy center that's like carnegie hall man and who would have thought that rhinestone ties and tattoos were going to be at at the kennedy center but that's what we look at is like well if we can try and break some ice try and knock down some walls all that's going to do is open it up for everybody else behind us. And it's not, they're not behind us, though. I shouldn't have used that. They're with us. Like everybody that is in the same boat as us, it's going to open it up. And we're going to have 
it's it's better for the industry. It's better for the whole bluegrass world. And that's that's what we look at is we want to I say it all the time. We want to give back to bluegrass what bluegrass has given us. You know, cuz it's like I said it's never going to die. We're all going to fade away sometime. We're all going to go. We're all going to leave. And but we can we can do what we can if if everyone has the the passion I know thousands of people that have the passion that I have for bluegrass music and more. If we invested just a little bit of time into some things and, and it, it don't have to be on stage. It don't have to be playing. It don't have to be singing. You're doing a bunch with, with what, you, especially this podcast, but you're a radio DJ. Those people are important. I shouldn't have said DJ personality. <laughs> and, uh, there it's every bit of this is important. And I, I think people, sometimes concentrate too much on their role as far as what am I going to do? What am I going to do for me? What, how am I going to do to get better for me? That me, 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 you can't do that. We got to think of us. And, uh, I, that's something I realized it took me a long time to get there. I'm not saying I've ever, I've always been like that, but we all learn. And that's, I think to be an open book a little bit and to take suggestion, listen to other people that have already been there and done that stuff. And that's, I think that's one of the things that I, I learned early um, is is to listen to other people from them older guys, you know, that I grew up with. And then even today, you know, I listen to your dad. I talk to Bobby Osborne on a regular basis. And where hasn't he been, you know? He's one of those people that changed the world with a with an electrified mandolin. Who would have thought that would happen, you know? And Bill Monroe, he, le- he electrified the stage of – the Grand Ole Opry with the Madeline. They're all innovative and they're all business people, but they're all extremely passionate. So we, we kind of got to keep, we got to stay grounded, but they were never, they were never up in arms against each other. They knew that they all needed each other to be what they were. So I think it's extremely important. And we, I just, just look at the whole industry, you know, just this is a one big happy family. And we can't, if we're all arguing and fighting and whatever, nitpicking things, then it's, you know, there won't be, there won't be anybody at the family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> so oh. I got on my rant. Oh, you're good. <laughs> man, thank you so much yeah, for joining man. us, man. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. I appreciate it. I listen to it all the time, so I'll have to listen to mine now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, so, man. Yeah, have a good one. And, yes, sir. Uh, we'll see you soon. Yes, sir. Hi guys, Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know about a new product we've released called Texture Powder. You just sprinkle it in, work it into your roots, and it provides you with volume and hold and texture while leaving your hair looking natural. Give it a shot. Use the code BLUEGRASS on our website to save 10% off your total. The Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, we were so glad to welcome C.J. Lewandowski of the Poe Ramblin' Boys as a special guest on Season 2 this week. Yeah, excellent interview. So great to hear uh, C.J.'s story. I've known C.J. since uh, he was just, I guess, I guess right after the, the Poe Ramblin' Boys kind of kicked off before they had their big uh, quick rise to uh, uh, success and, and started to win the Emerging Artist Award and get booked at more and more festivals. Great bunch of guys. And um, 
I think it was so great. I just I just want to add just in general, you know, that it's so good to hear these personal stories. CJ, a perfect example of this. Um, to hear one's history and for him to to get personal. And uh, um, I, th- I think it's one of the best things about this podcast and these interviews that you're doing is we get to hear these personal journeys of all these artists. Uh, and, and in CJ's case, it's an example of him talking about his love for music and how it's something that stayed with him and and for all intents and purposes, that may have saved his life, you know. Um, I think it's one of the special things about this music that it becomes such an important part of people's lives is the thing that um, all of us uh, enjoy about bluegrass and why we stick by it and why it sticks with us. And uh, I really enjoyed this episode for all these reasons. And uh, I'm just so glad in general. I just want to give you props, Daniel, for spending this entire season as it begins to wrap up uh, our final episode coming up next week. Um, that uh, for you to be able to go out and really uh, sit down and have heart to hearts with some of these folks, get their story, capture so many special moments. I think it's really been uh, um, what this podcast has been all about, really what this music is all about. So hats off and applause to you. Another great season, man. We really appreciate it. All of us bluegrass fans really appreciate the work. Well, thank you so much. It, it was a, it's always a pleasure to go sit down with folks and, and learn more about their stories and their backgrounds, with this music. I know CJ a long time, but to get to talk about his personal history and his deep uh, relationship with the music as almost a member of his family was was really special. Um, CJ, a lot of folks don't know this. Uh, CJ, of course, is a listener of the podcast. But CJ is one of the reasons that uh, we even have this podcast. I don't even know if I told you this, but um, uh, a few years ago when podcasts started getting big, there was a there's two artists that you know had no idea that they uh, they both texted me separately over the span of just a couple months and said, have you ever thought about doing a podcast about bluegrass music? And I hadn't really thought about it much until uh, those two people texted me. Like I said, they had no idea that the other one was texting, but one of them was CJ Lewandowski, and the other one was Gina Britt um, from Sister Sadie. So uh, big shout-out to them. They're the ones that kind of got my wheels turning on about the possibility of this, and then uh, you and I bounced the idea around at uh, uh, World of Bluegrass in Raleigh a, c- a couple years ago, and the rest is history. But So it was really great to have CJ on the the podcast. I know that he's he's a listener. He's been a great supporter of uh, all that we do, and to get him to sit down and uh, tell about his story. And, and it was fun for me to get to learn more about the bluegrass music uh, in the Ozarks in Missouri. I, I'm fascinated with the way that different regional pockets of bluegrass music kind of have some of their own distinct elements and uh, as someone from southwestern ohio which the dayton ohio area of bluegrass has its own sound the Asheville sound where you're from is a little bit different baltimore area the dc area even in the michigan there's they've got a, uh, their own little unique thing going and then learning more about the ozark style of bluegrass was a lot of fun for me yeah i agree some new names that uh, we don't hear all the time uh some of the ones that uh, CJ mentioned, uh, Don Brown, Carl Shiflett, Carl Shiflett and Big Country Show, which I was always a big, big fan of um, for years. And uh, we're going to dig all these folks up here and uh, make a, uh, add them to the playlist that we're going to make. That's going to include um, Poe Ramblin' Boys, uh, some Carl Shiflett, who else, whoever else we can find that uh, CJ mentioned there. And yeah, it's really great to hear the different side of the country. Um, in some respects in the scene that emerged uh, from music fans there. So yeah, great interview. And uh, so glad to have a younger voice like CJ's on this season of walls of time. 
I got to tell one. So the Poe Ramblin' boys, we all know they're super cool. They won Emerging Artist of the Year a few years ago at, at IBMA. They're Grammy-nominated band. And their new album, Toil, Tears, and Trouble, what's one thing that... And their branding, their marketing, as you know, what what are what are the, when you think of the the Poe Ramblin' boys look, what are the first two things you think of, Ty? Oh, the outfits. Yeah, sure, the outfits. Ta- tat- tattoos and bedazzled string ties. That's just <laughs> yeah. those are the two things: tattoo sleeves, bedazzled string ties. So we had a at the radio station I work at. We have a little lobby shop, and we had a gal coming today. She was super cool. She bought some. Great music. She bought some George Jones and Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn. And she was younger and she had tattoo sleeves. And it was so funny because she's like, you know what? I got a turntable. I want to buy some vinyl and I want to get some from a band that um, I've never heard of before. And she was flipping through the vinyl that we have at our lobby shop. And she saw the cover of the Poe Ramblin' Boys' new album. And like I said, she had tattoo sleeves. She saw all these tattoo designs and then flipped over and saw the picture of them and their colorful suits and their string ties. She's like... I've got to get this one. You know, there, there was a bunch of other great records and stuff, but when she saw the tattoos and she's like, she's like, I got to get this one just for the look alone. And, and, and of course I told her that she'll love the record, but yeah, they're doing a lot to break down some real preconceived notions of, uh, of bluegrass bands and especially traditional bluegrass bands on what they're supposed to look like or sound like for, for, especially for the younger crowd, uh, to see uh, their energy and their passion on full display and embracing who they are and really just owning it is a ton of fun. So be sure to see the Poe Island Boys on stage when you get a chance. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, they're bringing traditional music, music that's really 60 or more years old to younger audiences. And I think that's a great, uh, a great part of their style and a great contribution that they're making to the current bluegrass scene. To wrap up season two, we're going to go from one of the young cats in bluegrass music uh, with the Poe Ramblin' Boys to a true living legend in the bluegrass scene, a member of the Grand Ole Opry and the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, Mr. Del McCurry. Yes, can't wait to share this one with everybody. I will uh, hold my comments until after the uh, interview uh, section for next week, but I'm really excited about it. Everybody's really going to love this interview. Um, The living legend, like you say, uh, Grammy winner, um, you know, Hall of Famer, uh, one of the more highly award, uh, awarded uh, vocalists and singers of this band, Dale uh, McCurry Band, of course, all his sons and um, Ronnie and uh, Robbie McCurry that have made up that fantastic band along with Jason Carter. And we're going to talk about all those folks uh, next time when you uh, give us all your interview with the legendary Dale McCurry next week. Yeah, it's going to be a ton of fun. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, no matter how you're listening. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever way that you prefer to listen to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Like and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We'd love to connect with you. And if you go to wallsoftimepodcast.com, you can listen to our episodes, of course, learn more about us, and you can check out our official Walls of Time podcast t-shirts. They're golden yellow. They're super soft, and uh, we think you'll enjoy it. If you'd like to support the podcast, buy a t-shirt. That's one of the best ways you can do that. So thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, when we sit down with Bluegrass Music Hall of Famer Del McCurry, thanks for listening.